Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as you rode in to Jerusalem, there a week before you laid down your life, Lord, the, the religious leaders and the, uh, Lord, the, the zealots, if you will, everybody who um, heard and, and watched what was going on, Lord, those Pharisees called on you to shut up the crowd, to quieten them. And Lord, you said that if, if they were to fall silent, the rocks themselves would cry out. So you're worthy in every way. From every tongue, every heart that's in this place or might hear it. And so Lord, we just um, ask you through your spirit to uh, do a work in us as we think about the great work that you have done on the cross. And uh, Father, I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. I don't want to necessarily shock your sensibilities this morning, but you either currently are or have been a slave. Let that sink in for just a second. You either are this morning enslaved or you have been. And that's, that's the, the scriptural picture that we have. Scripture declares this, and our lives validate it. All right? The Word declares it, and our lives prove it out, one way or the other. Now, if you respond this morning and say, uh-uh, I'm a free man. I'm a slave to no one or to nothing. Then that right there reveals the depth of your deception and or your foolishness. That's the same thing that the Pharisees, or, if, or John calls them the Jews who believed, and that's a, a, a weird phrase that he uses in there in John chapter 8. But the foolish pride of those who were captivated in some sense by what Jesus was saying and what he was doing, but yet had not truly placed their faith in him. Jesus made a statement in John 8. He said, and John records it this way, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And those who heard that said, we are the offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. I don't know what history book they had read about the Jewish people, but they had not read the real one. Because <laughs> they said, we've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus didn't bother with the history lesson. He just went straight to the heart. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So you either are enslaved this morning or you have been. You see, Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. And his lies and his deception are effective for humanity across this globe. I fear that they are especially, they're especially powerful here in the United States. They are especially powerful here in a democracy of quote, free people, unquote. 
say Satan, he, he, he likes to define freedom. He likes to define the terms. And he offers freedom, and he defines it in a way that really captivates the attention of every one of our fallen hearts. He said, you don't need authority. You don't need to be in submission to anyone. You can do whatever you want to do. Be whoever you want to be. Spend your money however you want to spend it. You decide what your identity is. You decide what your purpose is going to be. You do whatever you want to do. You can choose. No one has the right to tell you anything else. What he leaves out there is that ultimately every human that draws breath will one day give an account to the creator who gives us that breath, right? We understand that? That one day we will give an account before God. And he leaves out that part. Scripture won't let us do that. Paul says in Romans 6, starting in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, that you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So I guess I was off base a little bit there at the beginning because you either are a slave to sin in yourself or you are a slave to Christ, one or the other, as Paul makes clear in Romans 6. Paul said in Titus 3, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to the various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the life of slavery. Scripture's clear about our condition outside of Christ. Do you remember our Israelite friend from last week? The one whom, if we ask him who he was, would say from the Old Testament perspective, well, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death. I was a slave in bondage. But I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and I was released, let out. We crossed over. We're on our way to the promised land. And he goes on to just lay out who we are as Christians today in pilgrimage. God's given us his word, he says. He's given us his presence, and he's going to stay with us till we get home. So that Old Testament, brother, helps us understand what the New Testament says. New Testament writers wrote the New Testament with the understanding that those who read it had read the Old Testament. Now, we understand, right? Jesus didn't have an Old Testament. Jesus had the Scriptures. He had the Scriptures. And what we have now in that first part of the Old Testament is what Christ had. And what he had spoke clearly about these ideas of substitution like we saw last week in redemption. And it's in the very core of who those people were that read these words and understood them. In your sermon notes, I think I have this. Righteous, I mean, redemption has, has been described or defined as the glorious truth that Christ paid a price to set us free from our old life of wickedness in order that we might belong to God and live to serve Him. But we really can't understand that work unless we understand the whole big picture of God's redemptive purposes in the Old Testament as they preview and point to Christ. 
So if you look in your sermon notes, why does the cross matter? Why would we take the time to do that? Well, I'm not going to take a lot of time to develop it. You have the outline there. And I appreciate Wayne Grudem's systematic theology because he does a really good job in there of, I think, concisely summarizing this. The cross matters, first off, because of our desperate need. Our desperate need. Four things there. We deserve to die as a penalty of sin. We deserve God's wrath because of that sin. We are separated from God by those sins, and we are enslaved. We are, we are caught in that bondage. JT mentioned it. Jason mentioned it. We've sung about it. Ephesians 2.1 makes it clear. Outside of Christ, we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We are dead men and women. We have desperate needs there. And we deserve desire to die because of our sin, all right? Ezekiel makes that clear. The soul that sins shall die, all right? It's straightforward there. We deserve to die as a penalty for sin. Paul says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We deserve to bear God's wrath. We are separated from God by our sins. We've seen that already in the book of Ephesians. Remember that at one time, Paul says, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were separated and strangers to God's covenants of promise. We were without hope and without God in the world. That's a desperate situation. And in that desperation, in that condition, we're in bondage. We're in bondage to sin. We're in bondage to Satan. We're in bondage to the world around us. That's, that's what he goes on and spells out there in Ephesians chapter 2. We were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. All of us are included in there. All of us. We need the cross because of our desperate condition. And it's on the cross that that need is met. Right? So here we are. We deserve the penalty of death. And while we were still weak, Paul says in Romans 5, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, he tells us in Romans 5. We deserve the penalty of death. Christ came. And was our substitute sacrifice. We deserve the wrath of God. Christ came as that lightning rod. As the one who would take that wrath upon himself as we saw last week. This is love, John says in 1 John 4. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And gave himself as the propitiation. The atoning sacrifice for our sin. We deserve death. He took it. We deserve wrath. He took it. We were separated from God. He came to reconcile us. Second Corinthians five. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Man. And redemption. We're in bondage and he comes to pay the full cost and take full responsibility of freeing us. I use that phrase Because in just a second, we're going to see from the Old Testament that that's what a Redeemer does. He takes full responsibility and pays the full cost to free us, redeem us, and bring us to himself. Jesus said in Mark 10, just just shortly before he would get on the foal of that donkey and ride into Jerusalem, he had talked about it. 
He's, he's told his disciples what's coming, but they still didn't understand. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom. So what comes to mind when we think about ransom? Think about it for a second. What comes to mind when we think about redeem? All right. Most of you aren't old enough to remember little little stamps that you, my mother used to collect these green stamps you know right never mind let's don't go there all right no no gary i know you you gray hairs may remember that but who are you pointing at brenda you know exactly what i'm talking about ransom what do you think about when you think of ransom yeah somebody's kidnapped and somebody's demanding payment and before, before we go too far down that road, we get into some really, really thick weeds and difficult discussions about who's paying whom and who's owed something in this whole issue of redemption. And, and hopefully we can simplify that and help us come to mind of that. Here's, here's something I want you to think about. Um, and, and I appreciate, again, Alec, what you're saying something in this regard that's been so helpful to me. And I want to just encourage you in this regard. Here's what he says. He said, Bible words have Bible meanings. And what matters to us is not the dictionary's opinion, but how a word is used in scripture, what its basic meaning is and what that range of meaning is and how it's used to cover that meaning. Meaning, here's what he says. Don't let Webster's define biblical terms. All right. Let the scripture define biblical terms. Which is why not only do you need your Bible, but you need a concordance. You need some Bible study tools that will help you with that, okay? Let me just encourage you that. They're all, you know, they're everywhere. But use them, all right? Because our, my temptation still is, you know, I have a big blue book there that's called a dictionary beside my desk. Back in the day, you used to open a book and look up and see what words mean, okay? And I still have one of those. But let's let the scriptures define what it means to be redeemed. Because we use that word in a lot of different ways. A guy has a really bad, Tiger had a terrible day yesterday at Augusta. He needs to redeem himself today and play better. All right? That's what the commentators would say. All right? You run short on money, you hawk your ring, and you need to redeem it to get it back. We use the word in a lot of different ways. Ransomware. Wow. I mean, that's a news item now, right? Hey, it, it needs to be. It needs to be. This idea that the U.S. Treasury Department, I was reading it this morning, just thought, like, is this that big of a deal? In the first six months of 2021, over $600 million was paid that they absolutely know was paid to criminals demanding ransom for our software information. And it's going to be in the trillions, they say, in a few years. So those kinds of terms and ideas cause us to kind of stray in a direction we really don't need to go when we're talking about this biblical principle of ransom. And being redeemed. So let's let David help us for just a second. David's Redeemer. What does the Old Testament teach us about the redeeming work of God? 
And there's three primary words there. I don't normally quote Hebrew because I'm really not good at it at all. But these are easy words, okay? And I just say them so you can so you can write them down maybe and go look at them, use your concordance. But three words in the Old Testament help us understand redemption. The first one is a little word that's just four letters in, in a transliteration, goel, G-O-E-L, goel. And Goel is what we will see in the book of Ruth from this one who is called a kinsman redeemer, a Goel. The second word is Pada, and that is a word that describes what the Goel is willing to pay. It is the price that he is willing to pay. Whatever it costs, he will pay it. And the third word is the word where we get the word Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. It's Kafar, if you will means to cover over. So someone who is willing to pay the price, secondly, that that person is willing to pay, and what is accomplished, if you will, when that payment is made, that atonement being made. So let's think about David for just a second. Let's think first about David's family. Really, let's think about David's great-grandmother for just a second. David's great-grandmother. And what else I want us to see here is that redemption is in his blood. Redemption is a part of David's personal family heritage, a part of his personal legacy. Over in the book of Matthew, if you want to just turn there and look at it for just a second with me, just to set the context for us as far as as the family goes. As Matthew has given us this um, lineage, this legacy, if you will, this family tree of, of Jesus I'll just read it. The book, of genea- the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Verse 4, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So you got David, the king, you got his father, Jesse, you got Jesse's father, Obed, and you got Obed's father, who is Boaz, who married this lady named Ruth. And what a story. If you dig back far enough in our family trees, You know, in our family legacy, you uncover all kinds of things, and that is true in Scripture as well. And it's such a beautiful picture in the book of Ruth. Ruth, with her mother-in-law, Naomi, kind of take the center stage there in that story. Ruth kind of clarifies and I think simplifies things for us in chapter 1 and verse 21 where it says, Naomi had gone out full, she said, and the Lord had brought her back empty. That's kind of what she says. She left Bethlehem with her husband and two sons, and she came back with neither her husband or her two sons, only one of her daughter-in-laws. She came back empty. Yet she came back, and this is, this is what I take away from that, that beautiful book. She came away having been under the constant sovereign care, oversight, and detailed direction, if you will, of God, who was overseeing every aspect of her life. She was in the hands of a loving, providing, sovereign God, who in the end would fill the role of this one who is called a kinsman redeemer, this Boaz, this nearest of kin who would take responsibility. 
And we don't have time to develop it, but again, here's how Alec Moyer defines what that kinsman redeemer is. He said he's the next of kin who has the right to say, you've got a problem, give it to me. You've got a burden, let me bear it. You've got a debt, let me pay it as though it were mine. You've got a need, let me meet it. That's exactly what a a kinsman redeemer does. That's exactly what Jesus does, amen? I mean, that's what he does for us. You've got a burden and it's your sin, give it to me, let me carry it. We saw that last week. You have a penalty that is rightly upon you because of your sin. I will take that for you because I love you. Jesus is that kinsman redeemer. We have a need that could not possibly be met outside of grace. David understood this because that was a part of his family heritage. Goel, that kinsman redeemer. David also then understood that that price that had to be paid was the picture of his whole national heritage. All right? That padah, if you will, that price to be paid for Israel's redemption. Jason read Psalm 130. He did that because it's one of the most beautiful pictures of redemption that comes in those latter parts. But, but here's what one writer said about, about that psalm and said about Yahweh, the one to whom it's really about. He says, Yahweh has three companions and they never leave his side. He never comes without them. Those three companions are forgiveness, covenant love, and ransom. Forgiveness, covenant love, and ransom. Now we know those are the characteristics of God, but just imagine, he never leaves without these. He does not. God goes nowhere that these don't go with him. His forgiveness. Psalm 130 and verses 3 and 4, Jason read, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. An understanding that we have offended holy God. He is the one who will judge us and the only one who can forgive us should cause us to be filled with a reverence and a fear of him. Forgiveness is who God is. Covenant love in verse 7 of Psalm 130. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. That is hesed love. That is covenant love. All right? That is a covenant love. That is committed love that says, I will love you till death parts us. And in the case of a Christian, death will never part us. Right? I'll love you for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. That's God's commitment to his bride. His covenant love. It's unchanging. It's eternal. And then his redemption or his ransom. Verse 7 in Psalm 130 and 8 says, With him there is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The sufficient price that covers will be paid. The one who has been ransomed or kidnapped will be brought back. I will take care of it, he says. So God loves us, and because God is love, there is forgiveness of sin. And because there is that forgiveness of sin, that price will be paid to accomplish that forgiveness. So David understood his national heritage, that that price would be paid. He also understood that it would be covered. As we mentioned last week, every time he went to church, every time he went to worship, and placed his hands on that scapegoat, on that substitute animal, every time he saw the priest take that blood and go in and disappear for a few minutes and then come back, David understood what 
The word says in Leviticus 16, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And on the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his fingers seven times. So the word is to cover. It's the same word used in Genesis that 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 Noah was to do on the wood of the ark to cover it with pitch. So here the sin is covered. But listen, it's not just swept under the rug. It's not just hidden from view. God deals with it through the blood of his son. That sin is atoned for, okay? That obligation is killed. It is laid aside. It is gone through the blood of Christ. So David understood this picture of the Redeemer. From his great-grandma, from his national heritage, and from his worship, he understood there is someone who is my kinsman Redeemer. He is willing to pay the price, and that price is effective. It does what it needs to do. So if we take that and, and move that forward into this picture that we have in the New Testament, this one who was to come, the one who we worship, the one next week who we will celebrate his resurrection, then we see the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises, these Old Testament pictures in Christ himself. And he is our redeemer. He is the one who redeems us. He came, he says in Mark 10, as a ransom for us. As a ransom, he said. So when Jesus says he comes to give his life as a ransom for many, let's get back to our problem. Who's being paid? All right. Who's on the hook here? Let's think about that for just a second. And again, I think the important thing for us here is not to take this image and go too awfully far with it, because then we get into areas that are are not accurate. They're incorrect. So the focus is not so much on the actual price that is paid. That's high. That's the life of Christ. But the focus is on what is accomplished and who it is that pays that price, who it is that accomplishes this work. So it's not so much on who gets the payment as is on what is done and who accomplishes that. Here's the bottom line. There is no place in the scriptures, no place in the Bible that gives us any thought or allows us to take any, any, any thought at all that Satan is the one being paid off. The scriptures will not allow us to think that because that is not what it says. The only thing Satan got when Jesus died was his tail end kicked. Okay. He was defeated on the cross, not paid off. Hebrews tells us that it's so clear that Jesus came and took on flesh like us. He became one of us. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter two, so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is Satan. And then listen to the next part of it, that he might free those who through the fear of death have been held in lifelong bondage been held in slavery, the writer says, to that fear of death. So Satan was not paid off. He was crushed. Satan was not in some way satisfied. The cross was his undoing. So here's the picture. In love, God provides to himself what was required for that payment to be made and for that redemption to be accomplished. That's the way we need to understand this. Ephesians chapter 5, he says so exactly. He says so specifically. Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
All right. Hebrews 9, Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. God provided for himself the atonement necessary. So he came to free us. He came to ransom us. Yes, we are outside of Christ, Christ held in bondage to sin and to Satan. All right. The writer of Hebrews said he has the power of death. Until Christ comes and crushes it. That's the amazing, the amazing picture of the gospel. Jesus kills death by death. All right? Susan and I were talking about it. How do you get healed from the judgment of the serpent's bite? By looking at the bronze serpent. The means of judgment is the means of healing. So he came to free us from the kingdom of the darkness. All right. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, it says in Colossians 1. In Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, the way we once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And yet he has redeemed us. Earlier in Hebrew, earlier in Ephesians, it says in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. He's freed us from that, to free us from our sin, to free us from the bondage of Satan, and finally to free us from that condemnation and the just wrath of God that we deserve. Today, if you're not in Christ, you are under the condemnation of God, and you will face his just wrath. And that is a burden, whether you realize it or not. That is a burden. Jesus said in John 3, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You stand in condemnation. And yet God in his great covenant, Hesed love, in Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. One translation says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. God in his love provides what needs to be paid to satisfy his holiness and to He's that wrath. Praise God for that grace. He came to free us. He came to free us from condemnation, to free us from final judgment. And he came to make us useful. <laughs> useful. In Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you get the time frame of what is being written here by Paul. And it, the grace of God has appeared past tense, bringing salvation to us. And it has relevance to us right now, right now, so that we will continue to renounce ungodliness. What we will see later on in Ephesians is this process of sanctification, being a new creature in Christ, means that that newness is reflected over and over and over again as we put off the old and put on the new. All right? Listen, slavery to sin is a hard habit to break. It's a hard habit to break. And part of being in Christ is that we have, through Christ, by His Holy Spirit, the power to break those chains, continually fight those battles against sin. Jesus came 
to, to free us from those worldly passions, but to also enable us to continue to renounce them. He says to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives now in this present age. Looking forward to, he says, waiting for the blessed hope that is coming. And then he says that our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, how was all this done? Past, present, and future, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Echoing what we saw in Ephesians, that we were created in Christ for good works that God determined from before the foundation of the world that we should do. And he chose those works for us just as he chose us in Christ. He sent Christ to pay the penalty for the sin that prevented us from doing what he called us and created us to do. And in Christ, we're given the Holy Spirit. Wow, it's just a beautiful picture of God's total grace for us. So let me... Let me give you some applications even as we wrap up the sermon in, in, in this way, okay? And first, let me just speak to you if you're an unbeliever today. I'll say it again, and it'll rankle you, I know, but you are a slave outside of Christ to your passions, to your ego. Worse than, well, not worse than that, but as bad for that is, is we live in a culture that wants to tell us we have the ability to define and decide who we are. That our identity is a matter of personal preference. And that's not what the scriptures tell us. So unbeliever, I mean, if you are not in Christ today, if you never trusted in the sweet grace of Christ for your forgiveness for the total absolution of your sin that he takes that penalty upon himself, let me beg you to come to Jesus today. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that if you would believe in him, you would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus did not come into this world to condemn you. He came into this world to give you a way to be free from that condemnation. And if you believe in him, you are outside of that condemnation. It's gone. But if you do not trust in him, you are under it now. And will pay for it in eternity. Come to Jesus today. Look to Christ. You saw that in our Sunday school lesson this morning. Look to Jesus. Secondly, Christian, you are Christ. Plural. Possessive. Okay? C-H-R-I-S-T apostrophe S. We belong to him. Preach that to yourself. We need to preach that to ourselves every day. The scriptures could not be clearer on this. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20. Later on in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, you were bought with a price. Do not become the bondservants of men. Christian, brother or sister, this is your identity. Okay, This is who you are. You have been freed from the course of this world, from the prince of the power of the air, from the ways of this world, from the spirit of this world, that it's work in the sons of disobedience. The culture, the country, the climate, political parties will tell us that that's where our identity is, that our identity is in our desires, in our psychological preferences, in our politics, in our nationality. That is not who we are in Christ, church. It is not. We are Christ. We belong to him. That is the testimony of our profession of faith. That is what we declare in the baptism. I put that on our Facebook page this week. That when we go into the baptismal waters, we are saying, I am dead to my sin 
under the water. I am raised with Christ coming up out of the water. This is who I am now. This is who I am now. This is me living out, portraying, picturing for you the gospel reality of my heart. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you've never made a public profession of your faith in Christ. I mean, there, sure, you, if you've trusted in Christ, repented of your sins. If he is the Lord of your life, praise God for that. But that, that obedience is not yet complete until you've made that public profession of that and followed him in baptism. I encourage you to do that. We're going to have it next week. You can get baptized in the real water out at the lake at Heiko. By real water, I mean you'll know what I mean when you go in it. It's actually not quite that bad this time of year, okay? Well, maybe it is. I don't know. Or you can be in the bathtub water here, okay? All right? We'll warm it up for you either way. Come and talk to me about that. Point being, Christian, you are not your own. You belong to Christ. Secondly, Christian, you are free. And the whole point of that freedom is to worship the one who bought it and paid for it. I love what it says there in Luke 19. When the Pharisees said, Jesus, you need to quieten them. And he said, if they should fall quiet, the rocks themselves would cry out. Well, that's what I was outside of Christ. A dead, sinful rock. And he took that heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh and gave me a reason to sing and praise. And Christian, that's your reason for drawing breath. Is to praise the God who made you and remade you again in Christ. That's the song the choir sang. That's the song of the redeemed in Revelation 5. John cried, there's no one worthy to take the scroll. And I turned and I saw the lamb who was standing as one who had been slain. And he was worthy to take the scroll. And they sang and echoed and rumbled through heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and listen to this, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and, tri- and language and people and nation and made them a kingdom and priest to our God. That's who we are. And that's what we've been called to do is to invite, compel, go out and proclaim the gospel so others will come in. That's our calling. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you today for this amazing message. Not my message, just the amazing message of Scripture. That you have come to redeem us. That you and your covenant love to us, God, have been willing and you have provided the price. And that price is enough. And I thank you for that. I thank you for Jesus today. And I pray, God, that every soul that hears these words, Lord, would take this good news of your gospel. And, Lord, if, if, if we are in Christ, if we've been redeemed and blood-bought by the blood of Christ, that, Lord, our lives would be a, a, just a, a life of worship and praise, a living sacrifice to you, Lord. That you would make us ministers of reconciliation, proclaiming the good news of how gracious and loving and kind you have been 
to make a way for us to come to you. God, make that message the heartbeat of our lives, I pray. And Lord, I do ask again that if there's someone here today who is still in the bondage of that sin, still enslaved to that, and Lord, their own soul cries out under the burden of that guilt, Lord, free them, I pray, through Christ. Take away that sin. Father, move in their hearts. Draw them to yourself by your Holy Spirit to come to Jesus today. And this we ask in the precious name of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In his name we pray. Amen.